Welcome to the CLA's first ever podcast series, Rural Business Uncovered. In this series, we will review in detail the key issues facing landowners and rural businesses today. For example, you will hear about how rural tourism has found innovative ways to deal with the COVID crisis, farm diversification through the eyes of a CLA member and how they did it, what the future of food looks like, and much more. The Country Land and Business Association are the only organisation dedicated to protecting and defending the rights of landowners and rural businesses. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Rural Business Uncovered, brought to you by the CLA, where each week we discuss matters affecting the rural sector. Today we're going to be talking about the future of food. We've had vegan sausage rolls, meat-free Mondays, impossible burgers, and the list goes on. But while there's been a polarising focus on meat-eating versus veganism, we might be missing the wider point. The global food system needs a shakeup, and the potentially good quality meat and dairy produced to high environmental and animal welfare standards can exist in a healthy, balanced diet. If you read the news and look at the menus in your favourite cafes, it would appear that consumer diets and preferences seem to be shifting. But what do the stats say? Did meat consumption go up or down during lockdown? What are we importing, exporting and actually consuming? What are we likely to see in the government's upcoming food strategy? Now, sometimes the debate about food systems can seem far removed from those actually producing the food, farmers. For British farmers, there may be a positive story in all this. If we're able to capitalise on the demand for sustainably produced meat and dairy, increase production of plant-based protein sources whilst reducing our reliance on imports. So to tackle some of these big questions today, I'm joined by Dan Crosley, Executive Director at the Food Ethics Council, Dr. Courtney Scott, Senior Policy Researcher at the Food, Farming and Countryside Commission, and Alice Ritchie, Climate Change Lead at the CLA. Well, welcome everyone. Everybody. Thank you very much for joining our podcast. And to start, I thought we could if you could just give us an introduction to yourselves and tell us a bit about your background, starting with you, Dan. Hi, Alid. My name's Dan. I've been working in the world of sustainable food, I guess you can call it, for the last 15 years or so, about half of which... Uh, I've been working and leading the team at the Food Ethics Council. And we're an organisation that is set up to try and unblock some of the contentious issues in the world of food and farming. Anything from questions about how we move away from the need for food banks to is there a, is there a role for lab-grown meat in the future? Um, so working on a huge range of issues, it's all about bringing ethics to the centre and how can we accelerate the shift to a fair food system. Thank you, Dan. And over to you, Courtney. Hi, I'm Courtney. I am Senior Policy Researcher at the Food, Farming and Countryside Commission. By way of training, I'm a dietitian and, and a public health expert, and I come at food policy really from that from that perspective, from a kind of what we eat and how it affects us and how we how it affects our health. More and more, I'm I'm building into my work, and that's what I'm doing at the FFCC. A look at how we can also link up 
you know, discussions around the health of our planet and the health of our climate with that of our health um, as humans. Thank you, Courtney. And finally, over to you, Alice. Hello, my name's Alice. Um, I lead the climate change and water policy programs at the CLA. So trying to help our members shift to lower carbon farming methods um, and looking into land use change um, and things like that. My previous role was working for the New Zealand government on climate change and agriculture too, and it's been really interesting looking at all the comparisons between British farmers um, and New Zealand farmers actually, particularly. I think they're facing a lot of the same things on the horizon at the moment, which has been yeah really interesting to look at. Well, it's great to have three top experts joining our podcast to discuss the future of food. And Dan, if I can turn to you first, where do you think the future lies for, for food production in the UK? A big question to start with. Um, I mean, my, my my sense is, I mean, there's lots of different answers to that question. I, I wish I could wave a magic wand and and predict what the future will be. Clearly, no one knows. I, my, my response would be, you know, the future of food is is what we make it, which might sound a bit a bit trite, but it is, you know, it's in our hands and it, it should be in our hands. The reason I say that is that. You know, I have we have to remain hopeful and positive. I think it's very easy in the current environment. You know, with a pandemic, a recession, climate emergency, obesity crisis, biodiversity crisis. You know, lots of people struggling at the moment. It's very very easy to you know get depressed and uh, have kind of negative views of, of the future. And, and no, no way am I undermining or underplaying any of those. They're all huge huge issues, and we're facing big questions about. What happens with trade, and um, the, all these will have huge impacts on our food and what we eat and how it's produced in the future. But I guess I'd, we we try to say stay positive and say, well, what um, you know, how can we, we we can all have a say in the future of our food system, what it looks like. My sense is, you know, there are some people out there who will be very much saying we should set aside a, you know, a small a small area of land to to produce lots of lab grown meat, for example, in the future. At one end of the spectrum, the other end of the spectrum, there are lots of people saying let's go back to a sort of idyllic view of, of farming, um, perhaps where everything is done at very very local, small scale. And my sense is that those are sort of two two extremes, and it doesn't have to be a choice between one or the other. I think actually there is there is plenty of middle ground. Uh, I think the future of food will be, I hope will be exciting i think it will it will be much more around you know resilience around farmers and, and businesses with purpose with honesty um, and and people you know, crucially everyone being fed well that's that's what we want to see um it's not going to be an easy path to get there um but i'm i say i, I remain hopeful that we can uh, all get involved and, and shape shape a better food system yeah and courtney uh, talk us through some of the inequality in food that you've um, picked up on we we know that there are many people in the UK who who are experiencing food insecurity, which means that they're consistently they don't have enough food, or they're worried about where their next meal is going to come from, or at its most extreme, you know, going without food. And in a food system like the UK, this isn't this isn't a problem of not having enough food in the system. It's a problem of people not being able to afford that food. And with the economic shocks coming from COVID and also Brexit coming. There is a risk, as Dan was saying, that this situation will, will get worse for those who are already struggling to afford enough nutritious food, let alone food produced to a higher sustainability or ethical standard. Um, and we know that people on lower incomes are often forced into purchasing comparatively cheap, but filling but unhealthy foods. And we have a lot of um, solutions at the moment, which are kind of band-aids on the problem. We're, we're providing temporary fixes, but we need to build a, a better baseline for everyone. 
And so it's important to make clear that inequalities are are really at the heart of this problem. And COVID and the shifts that we're seeing in the food system are really are really highlighting that, um, that that's, that's urgently what we need to address. And how do we go about tackling that issue? Because for farmers who are producing food and producing it to high environmental and high animal welfare standards, those production systems uh, carry greater costs with them. How can they make sure that they can run profitable businesses, but still provide cheap, affordable food? Affordability is, is the nut that we really need to crack. You know, healthy food can be more expensive to produce. Some of the things you've mentioned there, but think of the labor and the transport and the potential waste involved in fresh food production compared to the inexpensive ingredients and long shelf life of ultra-processed foods. But these ultra-processed foods, which are increasingly linked to poor health outcomes, are only cheap, quote-unquote, in the short term. Their long-term costs will catch up with us in the end, either in terms of environmental damage from the production system or negative impact on our health and therefore ultimately higher costs to the NHS, for example. And so it's, it's in none of our interests to allow these inequality in diets to continue, but most acutely for people who are experiencing food insecurity. And we need that food system and broader policy systems to make that accessible for everyone. So for healthy and sustainable food to be good business and to be the kind of dominant products in our food system including how and what is being produced at the farm level. And I would say that, you know, at the heart of that needs to be a coherent policy system, which is driving that change. And what about the government's approach to food policy? Are they doing enough on that front? I think there's a lot of a lot of policy options that we could be considering, especially as we go forward. You know, Dan, Dan mentioned trade, and that is certainly something that is going to become an important part of this equation, or it already is, but it will become an even more important part of that that equation. So I think we need to start joining these dots more and having a more coherent approach to policy. We've had, you know, some really interesting ideas um, pitched in terms of, you know, things we could be doing to address obesity, and we've had some really interesting ideas pitched in terms of how we can um, be improving the production system so that it is supporting a more, you know, sustainable management of, of farming and food production. But those conversations haven't really been joined up in, in a coherent way. It hasn't been joined up with trade. And, and trade is an important part of this equation. So we do need to start having those conversations and looking, you know, the, the government's policy approach. Hopefully, you know, the national food strategy and the, um, the work that's underpinning that is, is pointing in that direction that, that we really do need to have these coherent discussions. Dan, from your point of view, do, do you think that suddenly people understand the dynamics of inter- international trade and food standards a bit better on the back of these discussions? I think it's certainly improving. I think there's a long way to go. And I, you know, I myself am not a trade expert, so can't claim to be expert on all things, on the technicalities of trade. But I do think the work that Trade Unwrapped, the Food Farming Countryside Commission, is doing and work that others like which are doing in t- um, public dialogue with the general public to try and engage them on these issues are having cut through. You know, there's a lot of campaigning activity, lots of organisations, trade trade associations and others who've been getting behind and trying to mobilise groups of people who are often very angry about the current state of play. So I, I do think there is a growing awareness about food standards and the trade deals that, that are, will be negotiated in the in the coming months, the, the knock-on impacts that can have on farmer livelihoods in the UK, but also on food safety, on environmental protection, on workers' rights, on on the quality of food that we import and eat ultimately here in the UK. 
Uh, and that ties into a strong ethical debate. You know, if if the UK government is insisting on on standards in this country, and and clearly the farming industry is keen to uphold its high level of standards, yet again allow imports to to of food of food into the country, uh, and basically supporting other production systems which do not carry those same standards, it, it's it's a big ethical and moral debate. Absolutely, and you know, some of this comes down to different approaches, and the government saying, "Trust us," you know. We, we will uphold these standards and, and others, us and, and many organisations saying, well, whether or not we trust you is not the point. We want this enshrined in legislation so that we know for, for the, you know, for future governments as well. But for me, some of, you know, the, the starting point for a lot of this is whether or not we should be aiming for cheap food, whether that is a, you know, a goal that the government and, and others want to pursue. I, I certainly think, you know, absolutely we need affordable food. But for me, that's a different objective to, to cheap food. I think there are strong arguments for how do we help everyone participate in the food system? How do we ensure that everyone has access to food? You know, Ultimately, we need to, in my eyes, look at some long-term solutions for how we can involve everyone, whether that's a, a basic income for everybody or, or another approach or, or strengthening some of the safety nets that are there at the moment. But it's not just the, the cheap food end of the, the argument. I think we need to in some cases, may have to accept that food prices may have to go up. But ultimately, we, if we're doing that and we're paying a true cost for our food, we need to make sure that, on the other hand, people uh, people's income and ab- ability to actively get involved in, in society is is significantly improved. And Courtney, do you agree with Dan there? Do you think the food prices will go up in the future? I absolutely agree with Dan there in, ter- in the, the need to think about affordable food rather than cheap food and that food prices at the moment might not be either A, accessible for everyone because of their, their broader economic circumstances and that's something that we would need to address, but B, perhaps also not fully representative of the cost and the externalities that that, that food is, is creating. So in order to produce food to a higher standard, which will cost more to produce, we might need to accept paying a little bit more for that food. But it's really important to highlight that at the moment, there are people in the UK who are struggling to afford enough food full stop. So we have to address that if we want this sort of a kind of more ethical and more sustainable food system to be accessible to everyone. And the shift of behaviour needed to move towards a more sustainable diet is huge. But is it all on the consumer? Is there a greater role for farming to play in terms of shifting the whole system and helping to create new markets? Yeah, this, there is for sure going to have to be a huge cultural and behavioral shift for people in the UK to eat the kind of diet that's recommended for health and sustainability. And it is important to remember that this is not all on citizens to make these changes. The food system needs to help drive that cultural and behavioral shift. We've seen this before. If you, if you think about the dominance of something like a ready meal in our lives and our culture, those are relatively modern additions to our everyday existence that were driven by food system businesses as a solution to our ever busier lives. And we need the food system to do to help to do the same for healthy and sustainable foods. That starts with the kind of foods that we're growing and producing at the farm level, and it goes through to how they're delivered to citizens and how they're transformed into products. So every step of that food supply chain should be adding value in terms of health and sustainability, not depleting it. And that's a hugely important role for the food system to play in, in helping to engender the, the shift in behavior that, that's going to be needed. Hi. 
A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Country Land and Business Association have been safeguarding the interests of landowners and rural businesses since 1907. We lobby government continually on behalf of our members to give them the security and certainty to invest in their land and business. Our in-house professional advisory team offers members independent and impartial advice on every aspect of land ownership and rural business management to ensure the positive development of the rural economy. Alice, do you think there are structural issues around the food supply chain? Because uh, are there instances whereby the the producer, the farmer, is is too disconnected from the consumer, and and because of the way the structure of the su- supply chain is, you've got producers going to processors, retailers, and consumers. Sometimes the information flow up and down that chain doesn't always work that well, and and farmers possibly um, don't get the information they need to adjust what they're producing. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting way of looking at it and it's a bit like what you said earlier there is a bit of a disconnect at the moment between what the food that's produced on the ground and then what ultimately gets to the consumers and where it all comes from and there's so many different potential issues or queries around food miles and things like that and it does all seem you know it it sometimes seems almost strange that farmers produce food because the food that's in the supermarkets can often just look so different you know to what they're growing on the farms so I think it's really important that we that we try and retain that connection between the land and food and also look at the, there's, I feel like there's a general move at the moment towards lower processed foods and things like that and whether, whether or not it's vegan, for example, there is definitely a move to, towards people wanting to understand a story that comes behind their food or know where it's from or know how it was produced and things like that. And all of that I see as a, quite a positive step towards people retaining that connection between food and land and what ends up on their kitchen tables. And would you say, you know, are are there uh, new markets or opportunities for UK farmers uh, now in the future on the back of some of the changing food trends, uh, producing new crops or new different plant-based protein? Do you think there's going to be emerging opportunities? It definitely will be. I think there's um, already been quite a big push in the UK towards reducing more beans and pulses and legumes and things like that. They're healthy for people to eat, they're sustainable to grow, they fix nitrogen in soils and so they can reduce emissions on farm. Um, they're already used as part of crop rotations and things like that. Um, bees love them, and there's sort of, the list goes on. I'm not sure if you've heard of Hodme Dogs, one of these, um, it's a retailer that sells British grown pulses and beans. And it does, it seems quite strange thinking of quinoa being grown in Essex or chickpeas being grown in Norfolk and things like that. But they had something like a 2,000% increase in direct sales during lockdown. 
So I think there's a huge opportunity in looking into different crops like that, particularly plant-based proteins. I often talk to our members about, you know, things like oat milk that can be seen as a threat to the dairy industry, definitely. But, you know, we can grow oats in the UK. Why don't we start producing our own? So I think there's definitely lots of different opportunities that we could see in this space. And we can also consider how climate change might actually provide further opportunities. It sounds a bit strange to talk about climate change is potentially a good thing, but the east of England, for example, might be significantly drier, significantly hotter. We could be looking at, you know, five, six, seven degrees warmer in, you know, by 2050 up to 2100. So should we be thinking about different varieties of vegetables, different legumes, things that maybe are typically grown in the Mediterranean, even Africa? You know, it's I think it's so important that we think about some of this stuff with a really long-term focus so that we can take climate change into account and try and yeah position ourselves as far as possible as you know a key player in some of these newer markets. Uh, and Dan, if I can go back to you quickly, in your opinion, what does the most ethical diet look like and can meat and dairy be part of it? <laughs> Good question. Well, first thing is that there's no such thing as one ethical diet. What's acceptable to, to one um, and appropriate for one won't necessarily be acceptable and appropriate for for another but having said that you know what what we would say is that what we want are diets that are good for you know people planet and animals and by that you know as a, as a broad brush statement we would we would encourage people to eat less and better meat and to eat uh, more and better fruit uh, fresh fruit veg nuts whole grains pulses and all of these which were recommended in the Food Farming Countryside Commission report that came out recently. So that, that's very much, you know, it's the, in terms of what we eat, you know, I think there absolutely is a role for sustainable meat and dairy, if I can, if I can call it that. I think we need to shift away uh, as a society, as a high, relatively high meat eating country, the UK ourselves, we need a less meat intensive diet and we need to shift away from the most intensively produced meat and dairy. But I think there is a, there's absolutely a space in there for livestock, sustainable livestock done well. And I think there are lots of examples in the UK um, of that already happening. We need that transition to to happen even faster. Um, so yeah, there is a there is a role for meat and dairy um, done well. We need do need to reduce that. And crucially, it's not just the what we eat, it's it's the how question as well. How how our food is produced that is absolutely vital. And Courtney, would you agree with that? Eating less meat and dairy but better quality, is that the answer? Uh, I would I would certainly agree with that. I think from my perspective, you know, as we talked about earlier, we inevitably need to make big changes in the way we eat and the way we produce food to have a diet which meets all these different outcomes in terms of client and, and, and nature and nutrition and health and livelihoods. And meat, you know, meat does provide some important nutrients to our diet. If we're eating carefully managed, you know, pasture raised meat, it can be part of a healthy ecosystem and food system. I think Dan hit the nail on the head when he was talking about how at the moment, you know, the daily diet of many in the UK is centered around meat and dairy. And we need to flip that on its head. So the veg and the fruit and the pulses and the nuts become the stars while the meat and dairy are the, the accents that we add into that, to that very colorful and fiberful and, and delicious and healthy plate. And I think as, as you're talking about earlier in terms of, you know, Dan mentioned finding the middle ground, we come back to this in food and, and nutrition a lot because it's important to remember that moderation in all things is is good. And, and that's the kind of core tenant of a healthy diet. And I think that can probably apply to a lot of the issues that we're talking about here in terms of climate and nature and livelihoods and nutrition and health. And 
finding that diet that hits this hits the sweet spot in terms of moderation and the middle ground is is where where we need to be going going forward. And Dan, did you want to come in on that? No, I, I would agree absolutely with Courtney. All I'd add to that is that what I wouldn't want people to think is that it's sort of middle ground moderation means, you know, across the board around food and farming issues means we um, we don't need to, to radically change things. I think we, we absolutely do. Um, we do need some, as I said before, some real big transformative policy interventions from, from UK and national government development administrations so that the onus is not as Courtney said, not all on individuals to, to make the change. We need to support farmers on the, that, the transition to more sustainable farming. We need to change the food environment so that we're not told thousands of times a day that we should be buying this, you know, X, this particular ultra processed food. And we need to as I said, look at the other side of the equation and, and make sure that people have the have enough income and ability to participate in the, in the food system. So I say moderate moderation and absolutely in terms of moderating how much meat we eat, etc. But don't want to kind of promote a sort of too much of a middle ground territory. I think we need radical intervention, but also there's a lot we can do to change things for the better. So it's, how can we do more of the more of the good stuff and less of the bad stuff? I absolutely agree with that. And I think, you know, Dan, we could sum it up in saying that we need we need radical policy to achieve some of the moderation that we're currently not achieving, you know, to, to say that our diets are currently in that moderate space would be a gross overstatement. Um, so we definitely need that radical policy in order to, to drive that change and that radical shift in the food system so that these kind of diets become the kind of automatic choice, the, the easy way to eat. Um, that's, that's absolutely where we need to go. And that is going to take some, some radical change to get us there. Uh, and Dan, where do you sit on lab-grown meat? Because that would be a radical change in the way meat is produced. Do, do you see a growing demand for that? It's an interesting one. Depending on who you talk to in our council, you'll probably get different perspectives on that. I mean, my sense is, I think we need to be open to exploring, you know, exploring a whole range of possibilities in terms of different technologies in the future. So I wouldn't rule out, you know, automatically rule out and put a red flag up against lab-grown meat. I think it depends. But at the other side. Uh, I wouldn't embrace it with open arms. I'm, I'm sort of. I would. I think there's lots of questions that need to be addressed before before we could, you know, shift at any scale to to lab grown meat. I think there is. I, I understand. You know, there's, there's potential there. And animal welfare organisations, in particular, um, are understandably, if you like, uh, arguing the the case for for lab grown meat. But I think there are there are still unanswered questions about environmental footprint, about how acceptable this will be to people. And also, you know, fundamentally, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a believer in, in, in real food and, and lots of people would, would challenge the notion that lab-grown meat is, is real food. As I, as I say, that's, that's my personal, personal view is that we should be farming with nature and, and not treating food as a, a, a unit or a commodity, if you like, that, uh, I'm very much a believer in, in, you know, the, the power of food and, and the, the fact that, you know, it can be, can bring us joy, can be tasty, can be delicious. And as I say, there might be ways that lab-grown meat can can do that in the future. Um, I'll, I'll remain remain sceptical at the moment, but but not wouldn't rule it out. And Alice, if I can just turn to you quickly, that now there's a relationship, isn't there, between the food that we consume and and how land is used. You know, if, if we were to see some radical changes and you know real um, shifts in con- consumption trends, uh, what do you think will be the impact on land use in say by 2050? Yeah, it's really interesting looking at it because as um, Courtney said, I think, if we're looking at slightly lower meat consumption, less but better, and a move towards maybe more extensive pasture-fed livestock systems, what would probably change, and this is a Committee on Climate Change estimate, 
is a slight reduction in, in the amount of grassland and rough grazing we have across the UK, but also a slight reduction in cropland because we have so much cropland that is used uh, to grow crops to feed livestock. So there would be quite a different change in, in terms of the way that we use our land and the way that we use agricultural land. But what's quite interesting is that freeing up that amount of land would give us an opportunity to, instead of looking at land as you know solely there for food production, we could look at it in a slightly different kind of natural capital carbon asset type way and use the land either to produce food and energy or to produce food and store carbon. So it'll there will be quite a quite a change in land use, but what I'm hoping is that it will be not drastic enough to sort of you know completely change the agriculture industry as, as a whole, but instead it'll open up opportunities for farmers and for landowners to find different sources of income um, in different ways. So, for example, um, actually just last week I was in Norfolk and um, at one of our members' estates, and they've got sheep grazing under. 50 acres of solar panels um, and then they've also got those sheep incorporated as part of a crop rotation system where they provide with the livestock essentially provide the fertilizer for the soil um, replacing artificial fertilizers so in a kind of regenerative agriculture type system so thinking about ways we can use land like that or um, through agroforestry all of those kind of things I know that's moving away from the diet conversation a wee bit but it will be quite important to look at land in a different way and look at what else we can be producing um, on that land. So the industry is, is going to become far more diverse in, in the nature of the enterprises that we see on farms. But fundamental to the identity of farmers is that notion they are food producers. It's something that they hold very dear and very, very um, important to them. And as a final question to, to all of our guests on this podcast, where do you see the opportunities for farmers and food producers over the next few years? And if I can turn to you, Dan, first. Well, I, mean, I think one of the one of the things to bring into this is that um, my sense is that there is a growing support for farmers and British farmers you know, during the pandemic, and, and actually we need to build on that. So I think there is an opportunity for British farmers to, I guess, keep the transition that many have already made, but accelerate the transition to, to more you know, sustainable farming, to farming that has a significantly lower you know, environmental impact, that has you know, higher animal welfare standards that, that we need to accelerate the shift to, to net zero. So I think there are, for me, that's where you know, the big opportunities of farmers are building on the support that public support there is for, for farmers, trying to you know, encourage government to, to help that transition to happen. Um, and yeah, to continue that shift to a farming that, you know, where we can genuinely be proud that, you know, UK is, is global leaders in, in food and farming. Um, I think at the moment there are areas where we are amongst the leaders in the world, but actually we're not sometimes not as good as we think we are. And so I think we need to um, not be complacent um, and push for, yeah, push for that more sustainable food and farming that is something that we can be really proud of and that future you know, that ancestors, um, that our, our children and grandchildren can be proud of as well. And Courtney, what about you? I, I think there is a, a, an opportunity, two opportunities really, to one, to grow more fruit and veg pulses and whole grains in the UK. This will be especially important as we move forward in our new Brexit future. And, you know, we import a lot of our fruit and veg. So that's, that is one, one opportunity. I think the other one, um, which I can't remember if it was Dan or Alice mentioned, but linking in with local kind of local action and local level food, you know, the, the experience that we saw with COVID and the, the way that communities kind of came together, I think 
local action on food and support shorter supply chains could be leveraged a lot more. And importantly, not just from a kind of food production system, but from the role that they can play in knitting together communities and building a system that works better for everyone, potentially also including the farmer as part of that system. And finally, over to you, Alice. I would echo completely everything that Dan and Courtney have just said. Um, but I think for for lots of CLA members and farmers and landowners generally, it'll be about, just like the rest of society, streamlining climate change into every decision they make um, and every kind of yeah business decision they make too. So thinking about how they can move towards a low carbon farming system, change the way they use land to be sequestering and absorbing more carbon, because I do think we hold the key to climate change um, and also to a lot of other environmental issues. We you know, have all these opportunities to be both producing food, but also being stewards of the environment um, and delivering different kinds of environmental benefits. And although we do need you know, government support and support from the communities and things to do this, it's very much sort of within our hands, within our power. So I think that's going to be, should be a really key focus of the agriculture industry um, as a whole going forward. Well, thank you, Alice. Thank you, Courtney. And thank you, Dan. It's been a fascinating discussion around the future of food. And I think one of the key messages that's come through from all of you is that food production alongside environmentally friendly farming go hand in hand, essentially, and will be key to selling the story going forward. And there are opportunities, there are optimism, and I think there's a lot we can do to build upon the strong public image of farming and local supply chains, which we've seen on the back of the COVID-19 pandemic. Well, thank you once again. I really enjoyed your company and thank you for joining the podcast. If you're not a member of the CLA, you can join today. More information can be found on our website, www.cla.org.uk. Thank you for listening and I hope you can join us again soon. You've been listening to the Rural Business Uncovered podcast, the CLA's new weekly podcast released every Friday. You can find all our episodes wherever you get your podcasts or just search Rural Business Uncovered on your chosen podcast provider. Remember to hit subscribe or follow to make sure you don't miss an episode. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.